Welcome to another on-the-job training tidbit. In this session, we're going to be covering Rig Basic. So let's start with a bit of legislation. Define a hazard. A hazard is a situation or thing that could cause harm. Define a risk. The risk is the consequences or likelihood that happen because that hazard exists. Okay, in its simplest form, what does duty of care mean? So duty of care in its simplest form means cause no harm to yourself and cause no harm to others through error or omission. If at any time you were found to be working unsafely, what would workplace health and safety inspectors have the ability to do to you? There's a whole heap of things that they have the powers to do under the Act, but primarily they're going to be looking at your work, high-risk work licence, and depending on the severity of the incident, they may either suspend your licence or cancel your licence. So just think, it's just like drink driving. They can also order retraining, send you back for assessment, um, prevent you from ever holding a high-risk work licence again. But at the end of the day, just work safely and you'll never have to worry. So in order to work safely, we need to be able to find safety information. What would be three sources of information where I could find safety information to assist me? Remember the acronym SAC, S-A-C. SWIMS, Australian Standards and Codes of Practice. Employers have a lot of responsibilities, but to ensure your health and safety, what would be the three primary things that they need to provide their employees? Remember, safe, safe, safe. Safe work environment, safe plant and structures, and safe systems of work. But the buck doesn't stop there. If you've just obtained your, let's say you've got your basic rigging license now, and they're gonna get you to do some high risk work, what would be two things they have to provide on top of the generic three things? Supervision, instruction, and training. Okay, you've passed your course, you're now a licensed basic rigger. Under the Workplace Health and Safety Act, what does that legally allow you to do? What kind of work are you able to do? What tasks? There's a lot of things that we're able to do as a basic rigger. The basic rigger is entitled to do anything that a dogman's able to do. We can do structural steel erection, install materials hoists, CCLPs or cantilevered crane loading platforms or loading bays as we call them, place precast concrete elements, safety nets, static lines, mast climbing platforms, and perimeter screens and shutters. All right, let's get into some hazards and controls. So when we go out and we start doing basic wing work, what would be nine common hazards that we could find on a construction site? It always gets daunting when we, you know, get put on the spot and we're asked to say nine things of this or seven things of that or five things of that. The easiest way to do this is just put yourself in the picture. So you just step foot on a construction site 
and we need to come up with nine hazards. So let's do three up, three out, and three down. So if I look up, I've got power lines, trees, buildings. If I look out, I could have plants, vehicles, pedestrians, other workers. And if I look down, I've got underground services, uneven ground, trenches, penetrations, a whole list of things. So look at that, we've already come up with 12. So don't fret, just put yourself in the position and you'll easily come up with uh, whatever they've asked for, nine, five, 12, whatever it is. Okay, so when would you check your PPE equipment? Before you start. If something unsafe happens when you're performing ring work, what would be three things you need to do? Stop, assess the situation, resolve if possible, or get assistance. When performing basic rigging work in Queensland, what would be the four minimum safe distances to power lines? Up to 132 kilovolts, three meters. Between 132 and 220, 4.5 meters. Between 220 and 275, five meters. Above 275, six meters. So remember, three, 4.5, five and six. If I need to work closer than those minimum safe distances, how could I achieve this? Insulate, isolate, or use a qualified spotter. What would be two things that would alert me to the presence of electrical power lines in the work area? Tiger tails and marker balls. Okay, we're about to start some rigging work. What do we need to know about the ground? That it can support the weight of the load we're about to place on it. And how can we find out that information? Consult an engineer. Okay, we've been asked to erect a structure or put some plant up and it's gonna be done over a pedestrian footpath. What would be some control measures that we need to put in place before we can do that. Signs and barriers, overhead protection, or exclusion zones. What would be the control measures we'd install to protect pedestrians, other workers, vehicles, and mobile plant? Basically the same thing. Exclusion zones, traffic controllers, signs, barriers, anything really to make sure that we don't have those people interfering with our work zone. So when we complete basic ring work, what would be some additional PPE over the standard? You know, we've always got high vis, hard hat, work boots and all that sort of stuff. But what would be gear specific to basic rigging? Generally, we're going to be doing stuff that includes heights. So we're going to be wearing harnesses, lanyards, shock absorbers, and probably using static lines. Okay, we're about to start a basic ringing task. What would be five planning considerations we need to make on top of hazards and controls? So five things other than hazards and controls that we need to consider and plan for. So remember the acronym PLACE. Permits, locations, access, communications, and equipment. When rigging, we're going to be dealing with some forces. 
Can you define what the term dynamic force means? So dynamic force is additional force created by the movement of the crane and or load. What about wind force? So wind force is almost exactly the same. It's additional load created by the wind hitting the crane and or load. Alright, let's talk about some defects. If I had a flexible steel wire rope sling, what would be six things that I would look at to make sure that it's not defective. So remember back to our dogging course, remember the acronym HOW CAN. How can I use it? So the same goes for flexible steel wire rope slings, chain slings, um, synthetics, all sorts of stuff, uh, but just remember HOW CAN. So H, heat affected, O, overload signs, W, Wear greater than 10%. C. Cuts and abrasions. A. Acid and chemical damage. And N. No tag. What about shackles? What would cause a shackle to become damaged? Now this isn't a defect, it's a cause. So what would be the cause of a shackle being defected? Okay, so we could use the wrong size shackle. In other words, it didn't have enough capacity. We could use side loading, we could be dragging it on the ground, we could be using the wrong pin. What would be some defects on a safety net? Defects on a safety net could be damage from ultraviolet, damage from heat, stretched or missing tag. What would be defects that we look at on a safety harness? Almost the same as a safety net. All types of synthetics suffer the same thing. Damage from UV, damage from heat, damage from chemicals, missing tag, or it could be out of date as they only have a 10 year shelf life. So just on harnesses, harnesses fall under PPE, which as we know from the hierarchy of control is the lowest form of protection from a hazard and its consequences, i.e. the risks. So under what conditions would it be acceptable for a basic rigger to use a harness as an adequate control measure? This answer is simple. Only when it is not reasonably practical to use any other control. Alright, we'll cover off on a bit of static lines. Other than a ratchet and pawl, what would be some devices that we can use to tension a static line? We could use turnbuckles with locking nuts, come-alongs, or turfers. Once we've used one of those tensioning devices to get the static line up to tension, what's crucial that we do with that tensioning device? We either need to lock it off or remove it. Where could we find information about the force that an anchor point can withstand on a static line installation? Manufacturer or engineer specifications. What would be three ways that we can terminate the end of our 
um, flexible steel wire rope static line. Wedge and socket, machine splice, swaged fitting, or double saddle clamps. If we are going to use something like a turnbuckle to uh, terminate the end of our flexible steel wire rope, why is it crucial that we use an open framed turnbuckle? We need to be able to visually inspect the threads. Not so that we can see if they're damaged, I mean we do that anyway, but we also need to make sure that we've got minimum thread engagement. If we haven't got full thread engagement on either end of the turnbuckle, then it hasn't actually achieved its rated capacity. Okay, now we'll cover up on some cantilever crane loading platforms or loading bays. Before we go to pull a loading bay out, what would be two control measures we could install to reduce the risk of falling? Edge protection, barricades, exclusion zones, or static lines. Once installed, how do we stop a loading bay from moving around from its installed location? We can have through bolts through the slab, or we can use floor to ceiling props, so we're back propping off the ceiling above us. It's important that when we install a CCLP, that the surface is flush. That's because we're going to be running things like pallet jacks or, or um, loads and equipment in and out of the loading bay. If the floor of the loading bay does not sit flush with the floor of the slab that it's sitting on, what do we need to do? Install a suitable and rated ramp. When installing loading bays, to make sure the safety of pedestrians that might pass underneath the loading bay are protected, what do we need to ensure? That the loading bay is not exceeding the line of public overhead protection provided. Okay, so we've got our um, loading bay installed. What would be six things that we need to do as final checks prior to walking away? Thick twerps, T-W-E-R-P-S, tear weights displayed, working load limits displayed, bolts and nuts are secured and tight in position, handrails are in position, props are plumb and have the secure rear tyres in position, side panels and gates are positively fixed, no gap between the platform floor and floor slab, and adjustable props are set to minimal jack extension. Let's move on to safety nets. Can you come up with three reasons that it would be okay to use a safety net? What would be three situations we would install a safety net? Under roof sheets if we were doing roofing, demolition works, scaffold catch platform, circus activities, and children's adventure parks. How would you install a non-personal safety net? As per manufacturer specifications. What would be six situations or things that could result in a safety net becoming unserviceable or damaged? So remember, this isn't defects, it's how could it become defective?
Okay, we could have equipment or materials stored on top of the net, objects thrown into the net, sparks or swarf from hotworks, dragging the net over rough surfaces, incorrect insulation, and finally jumping up and down and using it like a trampoline. Let's move on to structural steel. What do we use packers for when we're putting columns up on plinths or pedestals? To make sure that it's plumb or vertical. When stabilising a column, what should our guy ropes be made from? Flexible steel wire rope. When installing the first truss on a roof, what would we use to prevent movement? Temporary guys, and where would we fix it? To the top of the apex. When we're erecting structural steel, why is it crucial that we use the correct nuts, bolts and washers as specified by the engineer? To make sure that we have structural integrity. If we don't use the correct nuts, bolts and washers, we could have serious structural failure. So how can we identify them? What markings would I see on a structural bolt? Three radial lines. What about the nuts? Three arcs. And finally, the washers. Three protruding nibs. What two pieces of equipment could we use to prevent the riggers from having to climb? Remote release shackles and elevating work platforms. Speaking of devices, what tools or equipment could be used to help us when erecting structural steel to make sure that they're plumb and level? There's heaps of stuff. Just think about what we would use if we actually went out to install a column. We'd use packers, hammers, steel wedges, levels, turfers, and come-alongs. If we're going to be using a ladder, what angle or ratio would that ladder need to be installed at to make sure it's set up correctly? 75 degrees or a ratio of 4 to 1? What would be two reasons if we're field bolting beams to install the bolts diagonally? It helps us to make sure that we're in alignment as we install the rest of the bolts and it also stops the beam from rolling. If we're attempting to lift a beam that's been installed and it becomes jammed, i.e. we're taking weight and there's no movement, what are four risks in this situation? Think of the acronym SUSO, S-U-S-O. Sudden and unexpected movement of the beam, uncontrolled movement of the beam or structure, shock loading of the crane or other damage, injury or death. Another thing when working with structural bolts and directing steel, we need to be using the correct tools. So if you're about to do up some bolts, what would be the tool that you would use? The correct size open or ring spanner. What tool would you not use? A shifter. And what tool would you use to help you pin or align steel?
a podging spanner or a podgy. All right, let's talk precast panels. What would be three sources of information I could look to when I need to understand the rigging configuration required to pick up a panel? Manufacturer specifications, shop drawings, or lift plans. I'm about to use a lifting clutch. What would be four things that I could check on that clutch before using it? Check for damage. Make sure that it's got the correct capacity that matches the lug that you're about to attach it to. That the mechanism's clear of all foreign materials. That it functions correctly, in other words the top rotates separately from the bottom. And confirm that it's got all the correct identifiers, i.e. manufacturer identification, capacity or a serial number. Will a 5 ton lifting clutch fit on a 2.5 ton lug and should we do it? The answer is yes, you may get it on there, but certainly we shouldn't do it. Why? Because they're not matched, so the dimensions aren't correct. Therefore it could fail, could fall off, and we could have some serious issues. Okay, what is the difference between precast panels and tilt-up panels? Well, tilt-up panels are basically always made on site. That's why they call them tilt-up, because you lift them off the ground and install them into position. Whereas precast are generally manufactured off-site and brought in for installation. How do we attach lifting or rigging equipment to a precast panel? As per main specs. And who's responsible for determining those lift points? The manufacturer. How often do lifting clutches need to be proof tested? every 12 months. Okay, moving on to sheaves and purchases. If a sheave groove is too large in relation to the diameter of flexible steel wire rope being used on that sheave, what will happen to the rope? So the groove is too large, what happens? The rope will flatten. What about if the sheave groove is too small? So the sheave groove is too small, rope's bigger, what happens then? Pinching and abrasion. Can we use a flexible steel wire rope in a fiber rope tackle block? No, why? Because the flexible steel wire rope is gonna damage that tackle block. Tackle blocks are generally made out of wood and only designed to work with um, fiber rope. If we're trying to skid a load horizontally, in other words, pull it across a surface, would we use a chain block or a come along? You'd use a come along. The reason we don't use chain blocks is because there's a higher likelihood that the chains are going to become tangled or you're going to pull debris up into the uh, chain block, therefore causing it to jam. Alright, what would be the minimum recommended groove depth for a sheave used in rigging work? 1.5 times the rope diameter. What's the minimum number of revolutions that we'd need to see on a non-craned winch drum when the load is fully lowered? You need to see a minimum of two revolutions. 
what would be four defects for a sheave? We could have no capacity marked. We could have cracked and broken flanges, sheave grooves worn, the bearing seized, missing safety clips, or we've got chipped cheeks on the sheave. And finally, what would be two ways that we can secure or terminate a flexible steel wire rope into a winch drum? Wedge and socket, clamp and bolt. And finally, mask climbers. What document do we need when erecting a mask climber on a suspended concrete slab? An engineer's certificate. And generally when we have a mask climber installed, is it masked out or masked in in relation to the platform being against the building? Masked in. And what is the specification on the outriggers when we're installing a mask climber? Manufacturer specifications. Okay, we'll wrap this session up with a bit of a quick recap on the maths. Let's talk fleet angle factors. What is the fleet angle factor for a plain winch drum? 9.5. What about a grooved? 6. Okay, load factors. What is the load factor for 120 degrees? 1. 90 degrees. 1.41. 60 degrees. 1.73. How would I find out the distance to the lead block? So this is all purchases now. What is the formula for the distance to the lead block? Drum width times fleet angle factor. What would be the formula for load in the lead rope? Now remember, this is a two-parter, so they don't actually ask you for the first bit, which is what is the Beckett load and how do I work that out? So the Beckett load is the total load divided by the number of parts in the purchase. From that we now have a Beckett load. How can we calculate the load in the lead rope? So start with Beckett load times your friction allowance, 0.05, times the number of sheaves in the system. So remember that sheaves in the system, not just the purchase. Once you've got that, you make times those all together and then add back on your Beckett load. Therefore we now have the lead in the lead rope. What would be the formula for the total head load? Load plus load in the lead rope and finally what is the formula for support sling load? Load in the lead rope times the angle factor. Okay well thanks for listening this has been another on the job training tidbit. I hope you've enjoyed it. Just remember, keep listening to it over and over and over again till you can keep up with me on how quick I ask the questions. Study hard, and I'll see you on the next one. Cheers.